How are you doing? Welcome. This is a sound purchase with me, Halifax Hospital Radio's Barry Peters. The lads are going to be on very shortly, young Stefan and young Jake. So keep it locked. None of your shit, only your proper songs. This is a sound purchase. A podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 26. The heart-stopping, pants-dropping, love-making, earthquaking, Viagra-taking, Bruce Springsteen's 2012 release, Wrecking Ball. So let's not make any secret of it. Jake hates Bruce Springsteen and I'm here to win him over. Jake, I need you to reach into this Sound Purchase branded mug and pull out two names. Our I don't have show. a mug to make um, fake reaching into a mug sound effects with. If you could do the honours, Stefan. Okay. Jake, you are playing for Adam Grandowski of Dover, USA. And Danny, you are playing for... Andrew Nicholson from Sheffield, UK. So this game for you both, this is called Two Truths and a Lie. There are some incredible stories of Bruce Springsteen sightings out in the wild. Two of these are true. One of these is false. Can you guess which one? You sound like you're going to say something there, Danny. No, I'm just, I'm just so worried. Poor Andrew Nicholson. Is that his name? Andrew Nicholson, yeah. Poor Andrew Nicholson, I'm going to be honest. I literally didn't know anything about Bruce Springsteen until you said listen to this album. So it's going to be interesting. It's now a good time to go into the various texts that I've had over the last couple of weeks. (laughs) I think the first one I got from you was like, I spoke to my dad about it and he just said, why this album? Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. He was even still asking me last night, why this album? (laughs) I hope to tell you why. Okay, here we go. Story number one. Bruce found out that a fan from his beloved home state, New Jersey, was suffering from audiogenic epilepsy, a form of epilepsy that causes seizures when a particular sound is heard. The triggers come from person, sorry, the triggers change from person to person, and this particular person was triggered by Bruce's singing voice. It got back to Bruce and he ended up hand-delivering a one-of-a-kind copy of Wrecking Ball with all of the vocals pitch-shifted up slightly for the fan. She could still enjoy it. Story number one. Story number two. Bruce found out that an old high school buddy's wife had terminal cancer. He visited the hospital two days in a row, singing songs, holding hands, and trading stories. On the third day, he arrived with his guitar to find out that the wife had sadly passed. He attended and sang at the funeral. The next year on the anniversary of her death, Bruce visited his buddy to have a beer and a catch-up. He noticed a set of congas in the corner of the room, which his pal had purchased at the suggestion of a therapist as a way of coping with the loss. Bruce immediately invited him to join the E Street Band and perform a song on stage. The third story, Bruce walked past the busker who leapt at the chance to talk to his idol. He informed Bruce that when he was 15, a buddy and himself had sold all of their worldly possessions to book a 30-plus hour cargo train journey from Argentina to see Springsteen perform in South America. Unfortunately, they didn't make it in time for the gig, 
Upon hearing the story, Bruce uh, sang a song with the busker, gave him $20 for his CD, and asked the busker to sign the CD for him. 30 minutes later, Bruce again returned with a larger amount of cash and thanked the busker for being a loyal fan for all of these years. So we have three stories. One was about the epilepsy, audiogenic, uh, audiogenic epilepsy, and Bruce delivering the album with pitch-shifted vocals to help out with that. Um, there was the buddy's wife with cancer, and he got the, the, his buddy to come up on stage and play congas for a song. And then the busker. Two truths, one lie. Uh, bear with me. Let's get the let's get the sounds going. How would they know that they're a Springsteen fan if they've not been able to listen to any of his albums because of his voice? Yeah, surely you just would have given up. Unless once again they played the records at a different speed. Uh, well, I don't I don't know what the internet was telling me. Also, thinking about it, yeah, just pitch just pitch shifting the voice would put it out of key with the rest of the band, and it would sound awful. Also, <laughs> singing, you're not singing at one pitch constantly if it's just one pitch that's doing it. And if it's more to do with the timbre and the tone of his voice, pitch shifting it's not really going to do the job because you're just changing the pitch. So I'm tempted to say that one's not true. Although I do also wonder why you would like prescribe bongo playing to, to get over morning. That seems a bit random, doesn't it? Oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, different things you can do with music therapy, though. But bongos? Yeah. People, you know, it's a physical thing you can take. If, like if you're feeling angry, like at the angry stage of your grief, you can take out on the bongo. It's yeah. a creative thing. Personally, I find making loud noises very therapeutic. That's why I'm really looking forward to being able to get back into electric, actually. I'm going to hire a room and just crank it out. Let loose. Just be loud. <laughs> but more to the point, isn't he famously quite strict, almost to the same level as James Brown with his band? Hence why he's called The Boss. So is he going to get some scrub who's just yeah. been prescribed some bongos on the stage? Unless he doesn't mic it up. <laughs> it's just to make him feel better. In which case, that's even more cruel than it is nice. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. At which point it becomes a little bit of a PR stunt, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, uh, and then the busker one, I can I can see the busker one. That seems so. I, I reckon one or two. I reckon the third one's true. And I either one or two, but I'm not sure which one. All right, I'm going to go for number two is not true because number one is just such a wild and random story. I don't know how you made that up. Okay. So, sorry, Jake, I missed, I completely glossed over what you said. In the interest of keeping the scores different, potentially, I'm going to say that one's not true and two and three are both true. Okay. Uh, well, Danny. Oh, no. And Jake. Damn it. Well done. Should have yeah. like Science, <laughs> yo. Yeah, God. <laughs> oh, heart was in my mouth there, Jake. I was, you're picking holes in my story. Yeah, I was, I was just surfing the internet trying to find anything that was negative about Bruce Springsteen, and there really isn't much. So, Jake, you've, <laughs> you've carved a niche for yourself today. You can be the first person online to actually be posting anti-Bruce anti Springsteen stories. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's cool. an honor. Okay. So quick fire context, because I could spend all day talking about just contextually uh, Bruce Springsteen. Firstly, 
have you ever seen Courtney Cox Arquette? I think she was at the time hosting Saturday Night Live. Dake, I know that you were you had a big Saturday Night Live phase. Uh, no, Chloe. Chloe still does. I've not seen that, but Chloe probably has. If you want me to bring her in, right, I mean, I've not yeah. seen it. Uh, she she hosts it and she talks about her famous uh, dancing in the dark video. I mean, we're talking. This is nineties. <laughs> this is at the height of Friends, pretty much. And uh, Bruce Springsteen was in the audience, and they got up and did a, an impromptu dance together. I've got a clip. Ten years ago, someone gave me my first break by putting me in a music video, and um, that person just happens to be here tonight. Come on. The amazing thing is they go through all of that. Then Courtney Cox keeps trying to carry on with her monologue and Bruce Springsteen just keeps interrupting her with the can't start a fire every time she starts talking. So, yeah. Jake. So I've, I've not heard that before. You were waiting for it, weren't you? <laughs> okay. I was. Uh, <laughs> did anyone else, did that just sound like Trey Parker? doing an impression of Bruce Springsteen. It wasn't Trey Parker. No, but it sounded like Trey Parker. It was uh, Adam Sandler. Like doing DVDA. It was Adam Sandler doing Bruce. Sounded like Trey. Oh, well, forget about Trey. Okay, quick fire context for you. Bruce has been critical of USA politics in the past, obviously, and is seen as a champion of the blue-collar workers worldwide despite being one of the most successful musicians globally for four and a half decades. There you go. Got that one out of the way nice and quick for you, Jake. Thank you. Thank you. This album is a scathing attack on the mishandling of Hurricane Katrina and the world financial crash of 2008. Whilst this is not an E Street Band record, many of the members perform on this record. The freedom from the confines of the band has allowed Bruce to explore sonorities and textures that he just previously wouldn't have. Throughout this album, he often ditches the distorted guitar in favour for an acoustic or a mandolin. His signature glockenspiel is traded for a variety of folk instruments, including the accordion, the violin, the banjo, lap steel, and pedal steel. I swear there's a tin whistle in there too, but we'll get to that. I can't see it listed in the liner notes. Maybe it's a keyboard sample. This album has a distinctive American sound mainly through the use of the folk music instruments that I've said before, but also through the exploration of uniquely American art forms such as blues, country, gospel, and folk music. Part of the reason I chose this was because of that very reason. For once, we've got someone really cataloging the sounds of America in his music. It's not just a recapitulation of uh, the British invasion 
like Bruce Springsteen's previous music kind of was. I'm gonna I'm gonna catch a lot of flack for that one. I'm pretty sure, but this one he's really he's gone to the roots of American music and he's kind of trying to discuss what it is to be an American. So this is the first album that I know of by Bruce to feature that American sound. In the late 90s, he did begin to explore his Italian and Irish ancestry and, of course, the folk music of those two. Okay, the album was recorded between 2010 and 2011 and released in 2012. I went to see Bruce and the E Street Band perform in July 2012, roughly about two weeks before I met Jake and about a month or two before I met Danny for the very first time. This concert had an, a lasting impact on me, probably not as much as the Midnight Oil that we've previously mentioned, Jake. It's helped me to get a, get a good grasp on some of the tracks. Seeing them live was one of those experiences where I have to admit, when I first heard this record, I was thinking, this isn't Bruce Springsteen. What, what is this nonsense? But the concert that I went to was legendary because Sir Paul McCartney was brought out on stage for the final two songs and they played two Beatles tracks. I saw her standing there and twisting the shout. And the band got so into the performance that they actually ran past the curfew quite badly. And basically the council just pulled the plug. The band didn't realize up on stage so they just keep playing. They just kept playing and none of the crowd could hear anything apart from like drums and a couple of bits of guitar. Stephen Van Zandt, uh, who was Springsteen's conciliary, later tweeted, I'm sorry, but I'm ha- I have to be honest. I'm pissed. It didn't ruin the great night, but when I'm jamming with McCartney, don't bug me. He also implied fans were denied uh, their final number by saying we would have been off by 11 if we'd have done more. I think that's a little bit arrogant of him. Just just a little bit. If you say you're going to be done by 10.30, you kind of got to be done. I don't know. So, on a somber note, in the middle of recording this record, the true, the one true original big man passed away. Clarence Clemens was one of the founding members of the E Street Band and he became... Springsteen's supportive shoulder alliteration, but check the Born to Run cover art, right? It's also worth noting that long-term members of the E Street Band, Gary Talent, Nils Lofgren, and Roy Bitten, did not play on this record, although they did tour the record. Last note for you, in the recent Fly on the Wall documentary, Letter, Letter to You, Bruce had a camera crew come in and document studio sessions for the most recent album. Of, of the same name it came out last year. Introspective and full, full of awe-inspiring moments, Bruce recalls his first band, The Castiles, from 1965 to 68. He says, That was a long time ago, but something imprint them on you and you never let go. But some things imprint themselves on you and you never and never let you go. For me, Wrecking Ball is one of these albums. It's grabbed hold of me and for the points that we're about to discuss you'll see probably why it's had such a profound effect on me jake hello anything to add there well context wise no not really to be honest with you you've already mentioned i'm not a big fan of bruce springsteen his songwriting his lyrics his looks his looks just his, his you know see his face and the red mist descends 
not really a whole lot to add, to be honest with you. Uh, something, uh, actually, I mentioned it now. I mean, I put it in my notes for later, but I'm going to mention it now. Why is he only just writing about Hurricane Katrina like seven years after the fact? <laughs> and the financial crash several years after the fact? I think it's all about the response to it. But the response happened at the time. No, it didn't. That's the point. That. I think as well, it's really important to remember that 2012 is election year. So I think it's also like a message to be like, you know what, you, like they've not, the government and, you know, the man has not been doing their job right. It's time to wake up America and and realize. And yeah, that's, that's why I thought maybe it's quite important to remember that this is the year he's released. Wasn't Bush already out at that point? No. Yeah. 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 And Bruce and Obama are tight. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, we should uh, we should also introduce uh, that we've got Danny with us, our wonderful Hi. singing correspondent, vocal correspondent. We still need to get a better title than that, personally. But yeah. Danny, how have you been anyway? Hello. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. I uh, was a little bit concerned when you told me this is the album we were going to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Like Jake, I'm not a huge uh, Springsteen fan. So yeah, this was a, a new cup of tea for me, delving into this. Well, partly, another another part of the reasons is I think this album was a little bit overlooked. Mm-hmm. Maybe for good reason. I'll just take those words out of your mouth, Jake. <laughs> but Although saying that, though, it did reach number one in loads it's of countries. really yeah, well-reviewed as well. Bruce. Yeah, you know, yeah. Bruce always reaches number one with everything he does. Yeah. Well, it's like we were saying <laughs> before we started recording, he's one of the best-selling artists mm. of all time. Yeah, uh, I mm. can't. Yeah, cause this is his what seventeenth album, and he still yeah. sells that many. It's incredible. Well, okay, shall we? Shall we have a little listen? Go on then, if we must.
was a burning thing. We should just go on uh, on record that say that most of the time we listened to that, Jake had his headphones off. Yep. Um, Danny and I were having a party, so that was okay. Yeah. All right. So the first track is We Take Care of Our Own. This track is often compared to Springsteen's other political anthems like Born in the USA, which is still being falsely used as a patriotic song despite its lyrics being overly critical of the USA. Though not protesting against the care of veterans in this song or on the veterans of the Vietnam War, it is instead a scathing attack on the government's handling of Hurricane Katrina. Fun fact for you both. I heard the other day, did you know that in, um, in Vietnam they don't actually call the Vietnam War the Vietnam War? What do they call it? The American War. The American War. Oh. Wow. Yeah. That's who they were at war with. And that puts when all I was into perspective, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, when I was in America, actually, they were they were refusing to call it a war. They kept calling it a conflict. Oh, interesting. I don't know why. Like, I don't officially know why. My my summation of that was that because they effectively lost and withdrew, they don't want to class it as a war. They don't. They don't like to make. It, you know, they don't like to be seen to have lost a war. Okay, so when I travelled to New Orleans. As we've all discussed in our last episode and your last episode with us, Danny, the damage was still present. And I was there nearly 10 years after Hurricane Katrina and there was still devastation everywhere. I think a lot of people just packed up and left and never went back to New Orleans. It's still pretty devastating to see some of that stuff. So Rolling Stone, the magazine, compiled a list of top 100 Bruce Springsteen songs. This one does not feature in that top 100. Luckily, though, Vulture compiled a ranking list of 340 of his songs. Sorry, just the way you presented that uh, fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is not yeah. even in his top 100. No. Yeah. According to Rolling Stone. Luckily, Vulture uh, compiled a list ranking all 340 of his songs, and this one came in at 138. Not too good, though. It's kind of middle of the table, isn't it? All right, all right, Danny. Yeah, all right. Jeez. You're supposed to be on my side here, you know? No, I'm neutral here. Yeah. There's one line within the lyrics that I want to point out is, where the love that has not forsaken me. I believe this is a reference to the final words uttered by Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I've grown up to be fascinated with the lyrics that are intertwined with religious imagery, and Bruce does this a lot. I'm not going to call him the boss, by the way. I, I, I refuse to. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Apparently he hates it when people call him the boss. He's a stupid nickname. Let's... Yeah. Well, it was a nickname that came out because within the confines of the band and the crew and so on, people would actually call him the boss because he was the boss. It was him making the decisions. So they'd be like, yes, boss, yes, boss, blah, blah, blah. And it caught on. And then someone from the press got hold of it. And it's just gone, boom, worldwide. Apparently he hates it. Unless mm-hmm. you are in that working situation. He likes to be one of the band. Apart from when he inducted his own band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did, did you hear um, that speech Obama did where he was like, I might be the president, but he's the boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those two have, <laughs> yeah, they have quite a bromance, those two. Eh? Mm. I think Bruce played on the last 
last day of Obama being in the White House. Mm. Chris was there playing. I'm I've always been fascinated with not Christianity as a as a religion, but Christianity as a story, as a kind of uh, as a I'm hesitant to say a fiction. I'll call, I'll say that how I a fiction. mean it to be said. Yeah, but it's not how I mean it to be said. But it's like not a not a not as a belief system. But I find the stories quite fascinating. Um, probably why I'm really enjoying Lucifer at the moment. I'm watching a lot of Lucifer <laughs> and just really loving it. Okay. Anyway, so Bruce Springsteen does this a lot where he twists in uh, Christian stories into his own lyrics and kind of morphs them into everyday content. And yeah, like I say, I didn't grow up religious. I would probably identify as meh or maybe agnostic. I did attend a Presbyterian high school. And I had to attend chapel services every Friday at lunchtime. The school reverend was actually the coach, uh, the coach of the Lawn Bowls team, a team which I, or this podcast coast, was the captain of. Uh-huh. Self-appointed, of course. And he was pretty cool about the situation, actually was our reverend. So when I, when I wasn't hiding out in the bathroom or the music department during chapel, I did use the time for silent self-reflection. I think Reverend Palmer would have been a-okay with that. But anyway, religious imagery has been a major part of music since way back. In the really olden days, music was run by the church, and the only music that you could actually hear was in service, in a Sunday session. Composers like Bach and Handel were employed by the church to compose music. Of course, the past couple of centuries, we've got gospel music, blues music, both which are rooted in worship and tales of the devil. I am more interested, though, in the authors that take Christian verses and warp them into rock and roll stories like Nick Cave's Tupelo, which uses the birth of Jesus as a metaphor for the birth of Elvis. I think that's mm. awesome. Yeah, of course it's Nick Cave, so he is awesome. Bruce in 1978 compared his own tumultuous relationship with his father to that of Adam and Cain of Cain and Abel in Adam Raised a Cain. Uh, Cain obviously kills Abel, murders his own brother. It's the first murder that ever happens, uh, allegedly. Now don't get me yeah don't get me started on Lucifer Jake. Wait, so yeah, what you're saying is wait but weren't we saying that Ringo Starr is Kane? Yeah, exactly, see. All loops back round. I I literally I'm I'm a bit behind on Lucifer. Spoilers. Tom Welling from Smallville has just shown up in it. Playing Ringo Starr. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's playing Kane, I'll <laughs> tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, anyway. Anyway, spoilers, spoilers. So as for musicians, aside from the string arrangements, unless I'm mistaken, I believe that Bruce is playing every single instrument on this track. Probably. Apart from the string. He can play a lot of instruments, so. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And, I mean, those drums are pounding. So the song opens with intent. The song opens with the drums, Bruce Springsteen himself, and a single note droning guitar so uh, every time so I listened to this one probably more than I did most of the songs on the album because I tried several mm. times to go for it anyway yeah. every single time that drum beat rather than going into the song I wanted it to go into Shawn Michaels intro music <laughs> listen to it again <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can hear it now, yeah. I think I'm yeah. cute. I think I'm cute. <laughs> I know I'm sexy. Yeah. Okay. So inside the first verse, there are 
Quite a few cool production tidbits. There's a slight echo on his voice, a tambourine, uh, what sounds to be the like the tapping on a guitar case, piano ostinato motif that sounds as if there are kind of sympathetic strings, i.e. strings that are resonant without being intentionally struck. It gives the piano quite a unique characteristic. It's a bit like a kind of like an old saloon sort of sound. Stereo spread on the acoustic guitar is really fantastic as well. Wherever this flag's flown, we take care of our own. So the right ear is just strumming on the one, and the left ear is, is kind of doing like a 16th strum, I think. The musical imitation of the ostinato is really cool. It starts off in the kind of glockenspiel, but moves towards the rinky-dink piano, and then in the later part of the verse has been picked up by the strings. From the shotgun shack to the superdome. And then later, as a part of the chorus, the BVs take on the melody as well. So I've previously stated a lot of times actually, Jake, that Coldplay are one of the best bands at implementing textural changes as a structural device. I was very worried about where you were about to go with that. I think Coldplay are one of the best. It's like, oh, oh no, it's all right. It's, it's a fine, it's a comp compositional thing. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like a tech, like a, a... Well, I think this track is a demonstration of Bruce's ability to do the same rivaling Coldplay. I, I haven't got any more notes after that. I think, I think it's an all right track. It's not my favorite track. Funny enough, my biggest criticism with this track, despite the fact I don't really like Bruce Springsteen's songwriting uh, or, or, or his sound and things, it doesn't really sound like a Springsteen song. Like it's produced, production-wise, really good, lovely, fantastic, not faulting that. But it sounds like the Arcade Fire or something like that. Or We're From Barcelona. Yeah, don't, don't bring up Arcade Fire. I don't <laughs> like Arcade Fire. It sounds... Arcade Fire, I believe, won the Grammy like record of the year what, recent? it was either them or black keys one of the what, other recently when uh no when this album oh was when this came out Grammy of the year but weren't they um and i was rooting this is the last time i ever took any note of the grammys yeah and when when springsteen lost i, I lost it <laughs> oh i think yeah i think this is very much like uh, i think this really arcade fire-esque thing i think he was going for that kind of because that was kind of the zeitgeist of the time wasn't it that sort of um Thing was starting to make a cut that, or like I say, like something like "We're from Barcelona." Bonus points to anyone who's ever heard of "We're from Barcelona." By the way, I'm just nodding in agreement. This this song, I don't really have a problem with it. It's more just you know he was trying to go for like a, an obviously catchy, earwormy first track to the album with that melody, and it is his know, first single as well. Uh, yeah, that's the first catchy, thing, like you know, kind of uplifting. The video is just him in, like, blue-collar workplaces, yeah. like the slaughterhouse and the wood. Of course and, it fucking is. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was clearly yeah. going for a thing of people, like, right, they've listened to the song, and then you're walking down the street just going... Personally, I don't think it's actually that earwormy. I've got basic... Yeah. I've got a basic memory. I can retain a melody for all of five minutes. Mm. Uh, it's no <laughs> born in the USA. You're not going to remember... Yeah, I've always viewed the song as "Born in the USA" part two. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Like this is, 
You say this doesn't sound like Bruce, and I think the production-wise, you're right because he's got a new producer for the first time mm. in years. Oh no, but I, yeah, as as a yeah, sound-wise, not so much, uh, and the vocals definitely aren't as aggressive as he's been. I, I appreciate he's an old man now, but they're not. Um, mm. You know, he's got to take care of the voice. Well, he's got to take care of his own, right? Yeah, exactly. I listen to this song quite differently. I mean, you mentioned religion a lot there, but the first time I listened to this song, I must admit I was guilty of uh, not paying full attention because my gut reaction was, oh, this is another patriotic chant, um, something that Trump supporters are going to like, you know, cling on to. And it just took me back to my youth because I did grow up in America. I was in America till I was eight. And it just reminded me of how we all used to, you know, do the pledge allegiance to the flag. And we, we would sing these songs. So the line, where's the promise from sea to shining sea? He actually repeats that, that line twice. And that's from America, the beautiful, which is another song you grow up singing in schools and crying like God from brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Like this is ingrained in us as Americans to be like a very patriotic song and be very proud of your country. And it wasn't until I actually listened to it for the second time and started reading about it. I was like, oh, my God, I am guilty of, of uh, you know, jumping to conclusions like everyone else did with Born in the USA. And then watching the music video, it became so clear. He's literally plastering the lyrics in front of you and the visual stops as well. So the visual movement like pauses. So you have to focus on these lyrics. He could not be like yelling at us more clearly to listen to these lyrics. And that's when I then started actually picking apart. And I was like, oh, oh, there's something going on here. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning how he released this track. It was done one track a day, which again is him is him giving you breathing space, like a chance to fully listen. You know, just put this album on in the background for the first time. You sit and you listen to that one song um, or you watch this video and you really, yeah, analyze these lyrics and it, it gets you thinking. It's not just a patriotic chant. It's more of a, a cry for help. Yeah. So first reaction, hated it. But then I listened to it a few times and I was like, oh, you know what? Bruce is actually quite clever. You say that. Uh, totally concur. <laughs> you say totally that, but he says, <clears throat> the road of good intentions has gone dry as a bone, as if that's a bad thing. The road to good intentions is, is the road to hell. The road to hell was paved with good intentions. So he's got that quote completely wrong. The next track is Easy Money. If only it was that easy. Whoa. What about those Reddit guys, hey, Jake? They seem to make it quite easily. I've mentioned Wall Street Bets uh, for a later song because he does like to harp on oh, about okay. bankers. And, and there was a bit uh, where I mentioned the Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street movement and how massively mm. ineffectual it was and how it achieved absolutely fuck all and how yeah. Reddit have done more in the last three weeks than they ever did. <laughs> But, which is good. It's good that, you know, people are getting things changed. Hopefully it will lead to, legisl I can't speak, changes to legislation. There we go. That's an easy way of saying mm. it. 
Yeah, yeah. Which will make, obviously, it harder for big companies to manipulate the markets in the way they do. I doubt it will have much change over our our end of the pond, to be honest with you. But, um, you know. That's all right. Well, legend has it that Springsteen had, invri- had invited Ron Anilo. Um, I think that's how you say it. That's the producer. Ron Anilo. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. To help him work on some tracks as a bit of a secret audition. So he didn't actually tell Ron and Elo that he wanted him to produce it. He wanted it was like a trial without telling him about it being a trial. The pair readied half of an album with full music arrangements and production. And then one day Springsteen came in with a new song, this song to be exact. And the pair decided to scrap the completed songs in favor of heading down this route instead. So that I think that was the actual, that was the, the test. See what he does with this one song. But apparently he'd written it that day. I don't know. So the song was written in reaction to the Occupy protests that Jake was just talking about. Another scathing attack on the wealthy elite and how they practically rob the common man. This is all discussed through the metaphor of a low-life robber going out to make easy money. I've always found it interesting that Again, Bruce remains blue-collar, common man, despite his wealth and status, that he can kind of make these comments without sounding somewhat hypocritical. Mm. You know, on mass, people don't read into this as hypocrisy. People read into this as kind of like, yeah, Bruce, you tell him. I actually read a, a quote where um, it was like fan forum. Someone said that he's part of the 1%, but he can fully embody the soul of the 99%. And I think people's sort of see him as like able to yeah embody that and speak that voice for them that without sort of caring that he's filthy rich. But he does seem to also be quite well excuse me but quite easy with his money in terms of yeah he still dresses the same way that he did when he was a 20 year old he doesn't really have many kind of flash things out in your face we know that he does but yeah, yeah he did have a, like you know that working class upbringing as well he obviously is still pulling on that and is able to do that well. Yeah, and allegedly he refuses to take a higher cut than the rest of the band. When he's performing with the E Street Band, he is equal to all of them oh, wow. as a member and he won't take a higher cut. Kind of cool. That's really cool. But then, you know, as Jake said, he inducts his own band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> Equal. You look like you want to say something, Jake. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I'd call it hypocritical. I would call it condescending. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the fact you've got this millionaire going on pretend. Because, yeah, he came from a place where he was, you know, a normal working person. That was 50 years ago. I, I can't relate with myself from 15 years ago, let alone, you know, when I get to that age 50 years ago. You know, I, I personally, I, I find it a little bit disingenuous. The fact that he still dresses the same as he's 20. He's 70. Why the fuck do you dress like you did when you were 20? You know? Why? Well, it looks put on to me. It looks massively put on. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's probably not, but that's the way it comes across to me. You could argue, though, that that whole, you know, with great response, great power comes great responsibility. So at least he is using his power to... I've got no yeah. problem with him, uh, you know, using his... He's a very altruistic person. You know, he, he does a lot of good things in the world. I'm not saying that Bruce Springsteen is a bad person. I'm just saying that he markets himself very well. 
mm. which is fine. There's, there's nothing but inherently wrong with that. Could you imagine if you saw a picture of like Bruce Springsteen in a cardigan, a knitted cardigan and some slippers? I'd prefer it. Act your age, man. What was he, 71? <laughs> uh, something, something like yeah. that. I mean, yeah, you got to go and talk to Keith Richards before you talk to Bruce I've spoken to Keith several times. Oh, you have? Yeah. Could, could you actually understand it? I can't understand his voice anymore. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, it, it kind oh, of had really to go rough. through several people, several layers okay. of continuously yeah, yeah. less messed up people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So in order to talk to him, you have to get someone that's like drunk enough, just slightly less drunk than he is. Yeah, and then you have to kind of tone and it then, down and, and then a bit all down. The so initially okay. it's someone who's, yeah. you know, taken almost as many drugs as he has uh, and then yeah. someone who's taken nearly as much as them and then you scale it down right. to someone who's just a little bit drunk. And then, and it's like Chinese whispers going the whole way up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, you've yeah. got to do it going back the other way because he can't actually understand you. <laughs> That'd be a phenomenal app to get, <laughs> wouldn't it? Like something where you can translate to a drunk person. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the song starts with a short groove of drums and tambourine. Surprisingly, Springsteen is drumming, whilst legendary drummer Steve Jordan, Groovemaster Central is just playing the tambourine. No way. <laughs> That's the biggest kind of like slap in the face, don't you think? Like, I, no, man, I got you up to my session to play tambourine. I'm going to play the drum. But he did He did let the, him finish the song, though, because it's just the tambourine at the end. It sounded like that one enthusiastic band player who got hold of the tambourine. <laughs> it was like, just couldn't stop going yeah. for it. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hear the introduction. Drums sound huge, don't they? Massive. The verse comes in after a short introduction and the voice, I, I think the voice sounds quite awesome, the way that he's projecting. Maybe not necessarily the accent, but the singing. You put on your coat, I'll put on my hat. I like it. You're not looking impressed, Jake. That's an awful opening lyric. It's just really bad. It feels very small town America. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like 1950s America almost, you know. Everybody's got to put on their hat. Okay, the full drum kit launches in and is joined by a fiddle, which pops up a lot on this album, and that kind of le- leans and lends its folky kind of sonority. Quite like that, and I think that Susie Tyrell is playing the violin. She's now a fully-fledged member of the E Street Band. And, yeah, I think it's one of those things. I grew up really hating the violin. Again, going to a kind of fancy Presbyterian school. Didn't like it, but I've I've got a lot of fondness for the fiddle and the kind of folky violin sound. There's a great kind of guitar imitation of the melody. I like the intent in the playing here, especially the little kind of slide at the beginning. Furthering the textural development, within the third verse, we have a tremolo guitar, which keeps the listener's attention. Quiet there in the background.
background. And, oh, here you go, Jake. You'll like this one. Towards the end of the song, Bruce Springsteen invited another WWE Hall of Famer. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, makes an appearance. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, uh, Springsteen puts his backing singers to good use there, I think. Quite cool. Mm. Uh, I love the fill to reintroduce the hooping and hollering and flaring. For me, the last note, it, it just sounds like a big party until it all breaks down into like a folky stomp with some killer organ riffage. I really like that about this song as well, that it's so like feel good vibes. You want to sing and dance and clap along, which completely like juxtaposes the message of this song that, you know, they're, they're going to rob and take our money. And maybe it is showing how we have been sort of complicit and we, we just like, yeah, sure. Go for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like that. What's that? Facebook. Oh my God. This is amazing. Have all my money. Just, just saying, Kid Rock's been doing exactly this kind of thing for decades. But um, no, we're not out here praising him, are we? Actually, I'm going to mention the one instrument you. I don't think you did mention okay. because everything else you've mentioned, I, I actually agree with from a once again from a production standpoint. Especially the Rick Flair. From the, especially Rick Flair. <laughs> yeah, the bass. I hate the bass on this. I don't know if it's the, the where it sits in the mix. I don't know if it's the sound or if it's the line itself. Mm which is very simple, you know, country stuff. I'm normally quite a big fan of the oom, 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 oom. Best bass line in the world. Yeah. I know if it makes the song sound a little bit empty to me. Maybe a bit more cheesy. Me, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind a bit of cheese, you know. Yeah. I love, love a bit of cheesy bass, but it's just something about it doesn't sit right with me, which is a shame because musically the rest of it is, let's say, like, like you were saying, it's, it's actually really well done. Yeah. You know? It's, it's interesting yeah. that you bring up the bass because... When I was reading Springsteen's autobiography, also called Born to Run, he just keeps talking about his bass player, Gary Talent. And to the point where I like I started to go back into the old recordings and listen to, you know, Greetings from Asbury Park, um, the Wild and Innocent E Street Shuffle, because I'd never really rated him as a bass player. Personally, I always thought, oh, he's just kind of, you know, doing his thing and, you know, yeah, the rest of the band's awesome and he's kind of there. But so Bruce Springsteen, he just holds him in such high regard, yet he doesn't play on this record at all. Mm. Yeah. Oh, funny, say, funny enough. So the, in the next song, um, I'll just jump ahead yeah. slightly. It's more or less the same bass line, but it works about 50 times better. I'll have to have a listen. Uh, and once again, I, I don't know if it's just because it sits better, it's been mixed differently or, or something like that. It's the same sort of thing, you know, that, that's like, duh, duh, you know, yeah. very, you know, basically outlined the chord. The song reminded me of Fat Bottomed Girls. Anyone else get that? Like with the harmonies and like how you want to sing along and the clapping. And... I could see that. Yeah. I... I'd have to listen to <laughs> Fat Bottomed Girls. <laughs> just again. All like yeah. that. I just keep thinking about that. Maybe I just got Fat Bottomed Girls on the mind. What can I say? <laughs> I didn't say that. 
I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay, uh, well, we'll finish this song then. The next song is Shackled and Drawn. I've always interpreted this as a song about race and slavery due to the images of the shackles as well as kind of the gospel sonorities. But upon researching the album, I discovered it's more likely along the theme of being shackled under the debt of the financial crisis. There's a good quote, and I'll play it. Gambling man rolls the dice, working man pays the bills. Gambling man rolls a dice, working man pays the bill It's still fat and easy up on Banker's Hill Up on Banker's Hill, the party's going strong I interpret this as bankers are gambling the mortgages and the earnings of the working man without any consequences because the working man will, in the end, just pay the bills. Pretty, pretty much. Again, Rolling Stone did not rank this in their top 100 songs. Are you sensing a bit of a theme here? <laughs> Uh, just yeah. a bit, yeah. And I'll, I'll just reiterate that that is the top 100 Bruce Springsteen songs. But Vulture ranked it 191 out of 340. That's low. It's quite low. Does any of the, any of these songs get into the top 100? Yeah. There's oh, even yeah, one yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a few. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the intro to this song is ghost notes on the guitar mixed with a clicking hi-hat, which sounds quite cool. just love the love how that kind of sets the sets the groove you know what i mean you kind of by the time they play the first chord you're already kind of bobbing along to that uh even better is bruce's counting i've i've always been a big fan of bruce counting in after the counting with two guitars an acoustic in the left and electric in the right with a stonking kick drum and hi-hat combo Really like that. Really like the mix and the stereo spread. This is yet another song where Bruce's voice sounds amazing. It's full of character. You can hear the years and the miles in his travelled voice. And again, his accent there as well. It's even more exaggerated. That, <laughs> that like country, like and and the way he like his voice breaks into the falsetto. No, you know, it's like so whiny and muddy river growl. And like, I, I mean, I'm digging. Do you like, mind if I cut that up and that becomes a new sting? <laughs> you do, yeah. Yeah. But yeah no, I, I mean, I, it builds for the character, but when I first heard it, I was like, what are you doing? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I think that's, that's just Bruce being, being Bruce, Bruce kind of <laughs> taking on his country persona. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. I, I like the voice in terms of maybe not the accent, but certainly how he's it's kind of delivering fun. it. Yeah. It's fun to listen yeah. to. Mm. Yeah. 
The chorus hook is catchy. It gets stuck in my head for days on end. The piano and the bass are introduced in the chorus also, but you have to fight through the lyrics to hear them. And Jake, you can talk after that one. Shackled and gone, shackled and gone. Pick up the rocks and carry it on. We're trudging through the dark and all world gone wrong. Woke up this morning, shackled and gone. Yeah, so when, when those do kick in, when they do kick in, this song is just Particle Man by They Might Be Giants. Well, funny that you say the accordion kind of little break there. Post-chorus, there is a melody, an accordion melody, which again roots this album in that kind of folk, kind of America sound. I really love the hooping and hollering as well. I think that's amazing, and I especially hope that they didn't record this live. So when Bruce got up to the microphone, he had to just stand there and hoop and holler, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it does make it sound like a party. It makes it sound like, you know, we are all kind of around that same kind of campfire. It does sound like, yeah. doesn't it? Like, yeah. you just let that moment overtake you holler away. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. My last note is that the, the ending features the impressive voice of Cindy Mizell, who, and I believe the term is, Danny, you'll be able to correct me, taking it to church. Yeah, okay, well, then we'll round it. that one out. No, we won't. I haven't said my piece yet. <laughs> Sorry, Jake. No, no. Yeah, you got your yeah. particle, man. What else do you be. want? Well, I've got to complain about the gospel bit. Oh, okay. Because he's got gospel wrong. Oh. Uh, so it comes in with this thing. It's like, you know, she comes in, she's doing her stuff. It's like, yeah, this is going to kick off into a big gospel-y uh, reprise of, of the chorus. And it doesn't. Yeah. What are you playing? What are you He's just doing that. How can just you get gospel get you? so incredible? How can you do it so incredibly wrong? Uh, uh, well, secondly, and this actually is going to feed back into my uh, argument against it all just being a very cu- carefully cultivated image of the blue collar worker. Mm. He's got such an outdated, rose tinted idea of what a working person is like. You know, I-, I get like some of it's metaphorical and stuff, but nobody in the history of anyone ever has enjoyed the feeling of sweat on their shirt. It's not a thing, you know. I think he's taking a bit of poetic license. It all harks back to what he thinks a working person is like from 50 years ago. It's like people, I just want to go out and work. It's like people, like most people, if they had the choice of not going out to work, they wouldn't. People weren't upset they lost their jobs. People were upset they lost income because there was no sort of uh, social or financial security net. You completely missed the point about what people were upset about. I don't know, Jake. I'm currently in lockdown number three, and I'm quite desperate That's to different. get back into my school. I'm not desperate. I'm not, people aren't desperate to be able to go out to work. People are desperate to go out and socialize. That's the thing. Well, but people, work also you know, just gives meaning to your day, doesn't it? it? Gives you purpose in life. Does it? Yeah. It yeah. can do. It can do. 
I don't think for a lot of people it does. Well, that's true. I'd rather people don't enjoy what they do. I'd rather spend doing my hobbies. You know, if, that's my life. Yeah. If 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 I could spend all my time, if 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 I could make a living out of just recording, and, and you know, just spending all day in a studio, and that was my job, yeah, that's not my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. most working schlups don't do a job that they're passionate about. They do a job that pays the bills. Yeah. yeah. And they weren't upset about losing the job because they were passionate about it. They were upset about that loss of income. Oh, that's fair enough. And, and the, mean, fact that, the fact that there were safety nets in place for big businesses. The big businesses got money, but people didn't. People got no sort of financial security. That's what they were upset about. People don't give a fuck about working. Yes, Jake. It's an outdated, I say, rose-tinted view on blue-collar work. Anyway, the next song, Jack of All Trades. If you thought Jake had a big rant in the last song about blue-collar work, let's, uh, well, it's it's coming badly on this one. Yeah, I've covered a lot of my notes for this song already, actually. Okay. <laughs> a melancholic ballad detailing a man that will do any menial job for money. Presumably, he's lost his job. The title is half of the phrase, Jack of All Trades, Master of None. Rolling Stone ranked this song 71 out of their top no 100. Way. Yeah, and Vulture ranked it 135 out of 340. Yeah. Yes, Jake. You missed out the last part of the phrase. What is it? Oftentimes better than master of one. So people say it thinking it's an insult, but it's actually um, a compliment. Oh, I didn't know that. If you're a jack of all trades. Okay. No. That's awesome. Okay. This song is the first song, and we talk a lot, Jake, about like that setup song, that moment where you realise the, the penny drops, you realise that there's something bigger in the picture here. This was the song for me where I first started to notice the lyrics and kind of went, oh, okay, I'm kind of, I'm with you on this. And there's such a sense of desperation in his voice, I think, the character that he's playing. I, I think it's quite a... Quite a, again, a really good, really good vocal performance. You know, different from the previous two, but, you know, just really understated. The guitar solo at the end is provided by Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. The less said about that, the better. It is a pretty moving solo, though, to be fair, until the pitch shifting. Compared to a lot of his other ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until the pitch shifting, although who am I to deny the man his signature sound, right? Some key lines from this song. The banking man grows fat, the working man grows thin. The banking man grows fat, the working man grows thin. It's all happened before, and it'll happen again. We'll start caring for each other like Jesus said that we might, which is more religious imagery through this song. Again, I think it's not necessarily the direct thing. I don't think Bruce actually identifies as an overly religious person, but I think it's very much a part of American culture to be brought up in the Bible as such. The intro features an inverted drone and some processed drums. Jake, you know I love the processed drums. We all love processed drums. We then tumble into a 6-8 waltz 
on a simple piano arpeggios, counting the beat for us. Simple texture at the beginning of the song brings about a sense of loneliness and when combined with the tonality and the content of the lyrics, it combines to make a very melancholic or down on your luck mood. Now we'll stand the flood. There's a new world coming. I can see the light. I'm a jack of all trees. We'll be all right. The second verse develops the texture with added bass and another drone, possibly on the violin. I'll hammer the nails and I'll set the stone. Later on in the song, we hear a brass band enter. This adds a somber note to the song as it sounds very much like a first line parade uh, funeral in New Orleans. If you remember the last time we had Danny on the show, Jake, we spoke about the distinctive funeral procession customs in New Orleans. The first line is somber and respectful. The second line is a celebration of life. This time, this is a reflection of the somber. The hurricane blows brings a hard rain when the blue sky breaks and the fact that the brass band actually enter on the lyric the hurricane blows as well another little nod to new orleans directly after that verse there is an instrumental break which doubles down on this musical metaphor The brass band of New Orleans crosses over with a rapidly strummed Italian mandolin, which brings to mind the Sicily scenes from The Godfather, a potential tip of the cap to Bruce's Italian root. Like the flip of a coin, Bruce uses the brass to his advantage and switches the mood. As the narrator begins to look optimistically towards the better days, the horn section swaps out their somber tones for more uplifting inspiration firstly it is six minutes long this song and it feels like it because i mean it's the same chords throughout it's very uh got that sort of walking pace lazy it's very he's very good at using his voice to to even further fuel that fed up uh, that fed up vibe the band as well i feel like majority of the song it's very lazy marching band. It sounds like he's just got the local marching band, in my opinion. Like everything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, ooh, I yeah. don't know, a little bit lazy, even like the tonality at points. And and yeah, it does it's it's that small town working man character again. He even plays into the stereotype of like he's telling his wife essentially, this is the picture we're painting in her head, like, um Jack of all trades is gonna be all right, dear. But I did like the for lack of a better word that sort of noise that the guitar and the electric drums makes at the beginning and then at the end sandwiches the song and it's kind of well to me it was kind of like the modern where we are in the modern world with like the 
modern noises, but we're still repeating these patterns that have been repeating for a long time where you're, you're working and working, working, and you're not getting anywhere. And this long linear song perhaps is the long linear road of life, just doing the same shit every day. Um, so that's what I took away from this song. Wow. I, I, yeah, awesome. It's not that she says it very angry, but the line, shoot the bastards, is such like strong words to use. Did you hear that in that interview he did in Paris, I think it was, when he was asked about that and he's, he's still reflecting on like his dad losing his job in the 70s and how you never recover from that, uh, which again fuels into this whole, you know, metaphor of life that like, like your pride can take a hit and it's really hard to get over that and done. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not going to harp on about what we've already harped on about. This was a sit up moment for me where I realized this isn't going to be like System of a Down where, yeah, they're, they're protesting about stuff, but then you'll get a track like Shimmy just thrown in. This is just going to be him whinging mm. solidly for 12 songs. One six-minute song. But not even whinging about anything personal to him. <laughs> he's making up characters so that he can have a whinge. And I know it sounds harsh to say, oh, he's whinging, because, you know, he's, he's got a good message, you know. Working people did struggle and, and big corporations are bad. But... Oh, come on, man. Just is it not tiring just to complain constantly? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Isn't it tiring? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking about but this. It is tiring and it's very tiring to complain constantly, but I haven't had to make someone up to I haven't had to make someone up to do it. <laughs> it's a good point. You know? I was thinking about this though, because you know, why why do these people, you know, they have like a couple of really good albums, say like uh, top of my head, Kings Leon, you have those really good couple of albums. Maybe they're a bad example because they had more than a couple, but then they just all of a sudden fade away completely because they run out of things to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. And, well, you and know, the, music, the music got bad as well. Well, that too, but, you know. You, they, they, you, only ever had, they only ever had like two things that they'd talk about, drinking and sleeping with underage girls. Yeah, but, you know. That's every Kings of Leon song. Yeah. The thing is, you... When, when you're coming up, you've got all of these stories about hardship. You've got all of these stories about working blue collar. You've got all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in that 1%. And you've got nothing to talk about. You've got nothing to complain about, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. Your career is kind of done at that point. You need to find new things to talk about. Springsteen's at least had the characters to talk about his whole career. I was thinking about this, Jake, because Foo Fighters dropped their new album yesterday. Was it awful? Uh, it's not got great reviews. I didn't mind it so much, but it's it's no white limo. I've got to put it like that. You know, but it's that thing of like, is Dave Grohl running out of things to talk about? I, I thought though the albums before that they'd run out of things to talk about, then they released that album. I know. But similarly, you could say something like, right, Adele, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. she catapulted out into superstardom out of nowhere. She had, you know, things going well for her. Still managed to find things to complain about though, didn't she? Oh, no, that's the trick. Rather than releasing like an album every couple of years, ha give it time to have something to speak about. Yeah. People, uh, I actually haven't listened to any Arctic Monkeys newer stuff for a while, but apparently they're still quite good. Yeah, but they've they've gone down a different route of like completely changing their their music, their style, their playing, everything. Like they've mm. they've 
crossed this barrier, and I think it's actually quite admirable of going from indie rock because we we're talking about this last week with uh, Later the Pier, where yeah. you know they've kind of got that one one sound. And then same with like Royal Blood and all of those guys. So the Arctic Monkeys could have just fallen into the block party and that British indie sound, but they kind of crossed over into the American Queens of the Stone Age sort of alt rock mm. sound instead. So they've developed. But yeah, I mean that's that's my only just, counter for you is that he's that's all he's got is to, to talk about these characters and to take on these characters. And it's actually it's quite clever of him in a way because it means that he's never out of date. I know that we're going to say that he's out of date, but you know what I mean? It's clever, but if every song, you know, it's, it's a good tool. Yeah. But a hammer's a good tool, and I wouldn't use a hammer for every job. Well, most jobs, yeah, but not all of them. So to finish out this song, the band burst into their rather inspirational guitar solo. I don't even need to look at the liner notes to see who played this solo because the trademarks are all there. For our non-guitar nerds, the solo was played by Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, an audio slave, and he loves to use a whammy pedal. Aside from the obscene use of the pitch shifter, and I can say that because I too like to obscenely obliterate songs through the pointless pitch shifting, but I feel like the solo really hits the right notes and it is actually quite heartfelt. Quick fun fact, Morello toured with the E Street Band on the Wrecking Ball Tour, both as the opening act of The Night Watchman and eventually joining the group on stage for songs. He eventually, though, replaced Stephen Van Zant, Little Stevie, on the Australasian leg of the tour because Van Zant was filming the second season of the Netflix series Lilyhammer. Yes, Jake? Uh, you forgot one Tom Morello accolade, fellow serial whinger. Yes, absolutely. So. Okay. Number five, Death to My Hometown. This is another bitter, angsty attack on the government and corporations for their hand in the financial crisis. When interviewed by The Guardian, Bruce said, What was done to our country was wrong, unpatriotic, and un American. I would hate to see what he has to say about the previous four years' administration. Rolling Stone ranked this 50 on their top 100. Vulture ranked it 303 out no of way. 340. <laughs> <laughs> so currently it's the highest ranked then. on the Rolling Stone and the lowest ranked on the Vulture one. This is another track that fulfills that American sound with the use of the tin whistle, which I, I really do think is a tin whistle, but I can't see it. It always reminds me of The Great Escape where Steve, uh, Steve McQueen is wandering around with his little tin whistle. 
just playing it as they're marching. And it's I think I think they're even playing Yankee Doodle. Comparing the financial struggles to war is an overused metaphor, although Bruce kind of brings a little bit of modernity to it, I guess. No cannonball did fly, no rifles cut us down. No bombs fell from the sky, no blood soaked the ground. He's not, he's, he's saying that, you know, cannonballs haven't flown and we haven't been shot and blah, 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 but it definitely is a war. It's death to my Growing up in Freehold, New Jersey, Springsteen was probably inundated by the traditional mum and pop store, many of which were probably struggling to compete against giants now like Walmart, Target, etc., even before the collapse. We would have a similar sentiment over here, maybe death to the high street. doesn't have the same ring, does it? Ah, it's kind of still fairly... I mean, that's... Oh, man. It's going to be fun once lockdown is lifted because uh, if you've seen what's been going on with, like, Arcadia Group. Oh, yeah. What's that? But, like, just swallowing all these other businesses. Oh, well, right. they've been swallowed by ASOS, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of a lot of these stores aren't going to be reopening. Mm. They're going to be purely digital, yeah. which is uh, going to lead to a lot of... Well, desolate high streets, to be honest. It's prolonging the inevitable, though, isn't it? I mean, we've we've been heading there for a long time. Yeah. Well, yes, and I mean, there's physical with things like clothes and stuff. There is always going to be people who've always going to prefer to go out and try stuff on. But obviously, I think they're trying to move it more into just order loads of stuff and send it back, sort of thing. Yeah. Which I guess is how it's going to go. Yeah. But um, but it's all just going to be coffee shops. And restaurants. And charity shops. You know, coffee shops. Yeah. Okay, so the chorus, whilst not overly complex, is simple and rhythmically quite catchy. To show us the hand of God, they brought death to my hometown. They brought death to my hometown, boys. The final verse, Bruce drops the metaphor and gets brutally honest. Thieves who came around and ate the flesh of everything they found, whose crimes have gone now walk the streets of screaming now there's a cool little bit of echo on the free men now at the end which is a nice effect to just really highlight that corruption mm. free men now, now 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 yeah okay there's all my notes for that one um but all of these strong words you know this image he's creating is so beautifully juxtaposed by you know the, the major chords and the feel-good vibes of the song like it is like a proper you know folk song where you imagine again you imagine you're in like a pub and everyone's singing along death to our hometown you know yeah yeah, uh, yeah so it's, it's, it's almost like a sea shanty yeah 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 also you just you didn't mention from his album born in the usa the song my hometown how this kind of is reflecting back on that song where it's like, you know, he's starting to see these troubled times and whitewashed windows, but now it's like, no, death. Like, everything is dead. Everything is ruined. Quite a big statement. I'm actually not going to complain about this one. I don't mind this song. (laughs) No Uh, way! Once again, because it feels, uh, doesn't, my, my biggest problem I found with most of this album was it felt disingenuous, I guess. This one doesn't. I think, you know, even multi 
multi, multi, multi-millionaire Bruce Springsteen can relate to not wanting your local town to, your hometown to, to die a really, death. Everyone can relate yeah, to I it. I haven't said that. I, if Bogner just dropped into the sea, I personally wouldn't mind. But if you come from somewhere that's not a complete dive, then... Yeah. Even you know. if it is a dive, he's, though, he's it's... made his name on being, home. like, the New Jersey guy. And he, for a period, moved to LA and just he couldn't cope living out there and he, he actually moved back to his hometown, New Jersey. Still lives there today. Yeah. Well, he might not live in Freehold, but he lives around there. The next song is This Depression. Yet another clear reference to the 2008 financial crisis, although upon reading his autobiography, Born to Run, I was struck by his frankness surrounding his personal battle with clinical depression. We don't often think of the global mega superstar as having quite a fragile ego or wanting for normalcy. Instead, many of us equate his success as a way to be rid of mental health issues like depression. It was powerful to hear him talk about this in his own words about his struggle. If you haven't read Born to Run, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. He uses an expansive uh, Viagra. No, he uses an expansive (laughs) vocabulary. Whoops. Freudian slip. He uses an expansive vocabulary. Okay. Rolling Stone did not rank this song. Vulture ranked it 192nd. Talk about some big, big drums. Jake, do you think uh, do you think that's a gated reverb? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, sounds it. Uh, they actually got um, Phil Collins in, obviously. Yeah. It's the. It's not actually an effect. It's just what happens when he hits a drum. No one can explain it. It's a weird audio phenomenon. It's like Shawn Michaels, sweet chin musicking a tom tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really weird. So they came up with this whole gated reverb thing to explain it to the public. But if you actually yeah, yeah. do a bit of research, yeah, um, I, I follow a guy on Facebook who did a video about it. Actually, just uh, that was a joke about, um, yeah, yeah. you know, about you know. I kind of wish it that. was true though. To be honest, that would be awesome. <laughs> okay, so he really does an interesting harmonic trick where he drops the last chord of the verse and switches in the first chord of the chorus, effectively skipping two bars of the verse and jolting the listener into the chorus. And once again, we're seeing a master songwriter at work. The intensity in the playing doesn't change between the chorus and the verse, but the thinning of the texture makes the makes the verse seem a lot more quiet and less intense. After the second chorus, Mighty Morello makes his return. Okay, do you have any notes, Danny? What struck me about this song is 
well, how depressing it is. So he has spoken about depression in his lyrics of other songs. But if you look back at like Dancing in the Dark, I mean, the lyrics are pleading for help. Hey there, baby, I could use a little help. But he's smiling. It's dancing. It's a feel good song. Whereas so, so then it shows like this high functioning, like depressive. But now it's like he's so beaten down. He can't even sugarcoat it anymore. I don't know. It really hits you hard. And then, and then again, this is even more empathized. Like you said, with the backing vocals, I really like the like, ah, like the swell, like a wail or like a cry. Yeah, it does. It does hit hit you. And even lyrics like the morning sun, it's like the symbol of hope, the sun rising again. And then he repeats mm. that again with this morning sun is breaking. So even. Mm these little glimmers of hope, he can't even see them anymore. Like to me, this screams someone who's really struggling, which like he said, if you read his book, he actually says um, 63 and 64 years old, which is when he was writing this album were really bad years for him. Um, So yeah, I really, I really feel for him. And and then again, it wasn't until I I sort of listened to this song in the context of the album. I was like, how does this fit in this album? And I, and then I started thinking like, Oh, is this depression? societal depression from the recession um mm. and is it is him saying things like i need your heart is that the heartless brokers that he's pleading to um so yeah you, you can um, unpick the lyrics all you want but yeah my initial reaction was like hannah you okay it's a pretty powerful song yeah like you got notes for this one kind of i mean i'm not gonna rip into a man for you know going on about their personal depression. It's obviously, I'm, I'm sure you guys have just been taught, sorry, I had to go and sort some shit out. Ball, all hail the E Street Band. This is where most of them make their debut on the record. We have Max Weinberg on the drums, ironically, or not ironic, it's not ironic at all. Hello, Alanis Morissette. Max Weinberg's son, Jake, is the new Slipknot drummer. Fun fact. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, neat. Charlie Giordano, Stephen Van Zandt, little Stevie. That's from the Christmas Chronicles. It's amazing. <laughs> And the original big man, Clarence Clemens. I believe they stitched his parts in together from outtakes of this song. Rolling Stone rank it number 43 on their top 100. And Vulture rank it 311. It's worth noting there's a lot of mention of Steel in this song. And most of Bruce's back catalogue actually, to be fair. But this could be taken two ways. Immediately before getting the E Street Band together... He led a blues psychedelic band named Steel Mill. And also New Jersey houses quite a few Steel Mills, which links to the blue-collar themes within Bruce's writing. The song was originally written about the demolition of New Jersey's giant stadiums, where, ironically, the New York Giants and the New York Jets were playing. The song has become a song of recognition of the American spirit and resilience, the hard work following the financial crash. The track starts with the strummed electric guitar and solo voice to set the scene. 
The first chorus features another E Street member, Susie Tyrell on the violin. I didn't mention her earlier in the lineup because she's featured pretty much on every track so far on the album. Also present is Giordano's accordion, and the texture is slowly thickening. Bring on your Bring on your Come on and take your best shot. Let me see what you got. Bring on your Majority of the lyrics seem to be sprinkled with references to Giant Stadium. Meadowlands was the nickname for the stadium. This is something I really don't like, and again, we'll take this back to the Foo Fighters, Jake. Their Sonic Highways album that they did where they traveled around, I didn't, I just didn't connect with the lyrics where they were just cherry-picking things from the interviews and dropping them in. I, that didn't work for me. But I do love the simile about mosquitoes. Now my home's here in these meadowlands Where mosquitoes grow big as airplanes Really like that. Mosquitoes as big as airplanes. I think that's quite cool. And then the party really gets started when Bruce starts counting. And it's the changing harmony underneath the hard times. Hard times come, hard times go, and hard times come, and 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 hard times go. It just did come again, Yeah, so I really like how this song builds. It, it's like, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly building, build, 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 and you get to the bridge and then it breaks back down and then it like builds back up for the end. I don't know, it's like reflective of, of you know, this, again, this idea where things are going to come and go and like, oh, you know, can be let down sometimes. But um, they, I mean, Bruce himself described this song as being a metaphor for you have to destroy something to build something new, you know, and it's okay to like embrace the future. And I, I guess, I guess I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> but sometimes we need to tear down the foundation. Yeah. Something like societal foundation. Yeah. In order to make way for, for the new. a better future. And it is, yeah. it is, there's like all these strong messages of hope, especially with the call and response at the end where it's like a preacher and then like all these people who you imagine are sitting in the church replying. Um, yeah. Like by the end, you feel really pumped, like you're ready to go out to that march or that protest or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I also can't hear this title without thinking how pissed he must have been when Miley Cyrus brought out Wrecking Ball the, year, the next year, 2013. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> having, to, having to preface all of my Google searches with Bruce Springsteen. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jake, you got anything? No, nah, not really, to be honest with you. I, I can't we pretty much actually see it. that I've got this one written down. Yeah, you pretty much covered it. I've got nothing really to complain about on this one. Uh, and you've covered all the good stuff, so.
Okay, you've got it. The next track, you've got it. Bruce goes full country. Never go full country, but Bruce has done it. Not uh, much to say about this track. Probably my least like. It suffers from insane white limo syndrome. <laughs> Rolling Stone did not rank it in their top 100. Vulture ranked it 253rd out of 340. That's crazy. Okay, it does feature Greg lies i'm gonna say on the lap steel and marcus muller on pedal steel okay greg lies i, I believe that's his name hey, you can't read it in a book. greg lies all right pipe down arnold greg's cv is massive he's worked with john mayer emmylou harris eric clapton jackson brown the, the combined the combined version. I love it. That's combined. Yeah. He recorded on Melancholy. Uh, and he's also recorded with Daft Pug. But that's it. That's all I got for this song. Just, yeah, I'm not a fan. I hated this song when I first listened to it. I thought he sounded yeah. pervy and sleazy. And it was that stereotypical, you know, guy. Because, in in, again, he's got that strong accent and that's that stereotypical yeah. guy at the bar, like, picking up this girl, like, oh, you got it. I want it, you know. But then yeah, yeah. once I dug a little deeper, I kind of, like, the song does stick out because if you listen to his other, like, love songs or about, like, love interests, they all are quite cynical, whereas this, there's nothing sort of cynical. It's just, it's just like a cheesy little song about being really into someone versus other songs like uh, Two Hearts is like a journey of love, but it's riddled, riddled with heartbreak. Girls in summer clothes, it's only like two thirds of the way. And then you realize, but you do realize that Billy is heartbroken. So that's quite, uh, it sticks out as it's unusual for Bruce Springsteen. Mm. But I do think mm. that this song is important in terms of the album because it, firstly, it acts as like a little break. You know, it's just a little relief after mm. all that heavy shit. Um, but it also acts as like a, a moment to pivot into the next uh you know bit of the album if you will because this is when it really shifts yeah in, into a different feel yeah also i did wonder more listen to it is he speaking to a girl or like all of his other songs is there double meaning behind this and is it maybe you got it is he actually referring to the human spirit under pressure so your soul and you've got it, I want it. And it, it maybe this is, again, him saying, uh, you know, there is hope and we've all got it within us. No one can break it. No one can steal it. Referencing back to his song, um, The Robbery from Easy Money. Nobody's going to do that to us again because, you know, we've, we've got this. You've read into this a lot more than I have. I just went, oh, it's just country blues banger, isn't it? Oh, not a banger, really. <laughs> Honestly, I hated it and I didn't know what I was going to say. So I thought, oh, I probably should think about this a little bit more. Uh, you really are like the perfect guest to get on because all of the songs where I don't have much, you've got yeah. tons of stuff, so it's brilliant. All I've really got is at about one minute fifty, you get your when the band comes in, you get the drum feel. Just sounds like bad days, uh, and I don't know if that's just be I don't know if it's just because of the bass line, but it's got a real the actual music. Maybe not what he's singing about so much or the way he's singing, but the music is definitely very flaming lips. Yeah, which I like because I love the flaming lips. But once again, not sure if that's a very Springsteeny thing. Mm. Okay, well, we'll round that one out.
The next song is Rocky Ground. I want to preface this song by saying that there is some voodoo magic in this song. Whilst preparing for this episode, I listened to this song and listened to it and listened to it. I got stuck on a loop. It really sent me spiraling. I had went and picked my wife up from work. I had to reassure her that every was, everything was fine. I was just in a mood. This song bears a heavy soul and subject that just, it, I don't know, it sadly remains ever relevant and unjust now. This is, this is a huge song for me, and I've always liked this song. There's something in it that just drives me into a depression, but I willingly take it by the hand and dive in. Rolling Stone ranked it 73rd out of their top 100, and Vulture ranked it 53rd out of their 340. The lyrics contain more religious imagery, this time used as a metaphor for flushing out the negative in American society and retaining the good, i.e. the Great Flood. Part of the power for this song comes from Bruce's lethargic vocal performance, the brass band, the use of the gospel choir, Michelle Moore's vocals in the chorus. The message is too important for Bruce to assume the mantle and preach. I really like that he gives the powerful lines off to you know, his backing singer or to his featured singer, Michelle Moore. I think that's a classy thing for him to do. Uh, although, allegedly, he attempted the rap in the studio <laughs> and why oh i'd love to hear that and wisely decided against it <laughs> the song begins with a sample taken from alan lomax's field recording library there are a lot of contrasting opinions as to who is singing in the sample though it is agreed the song is a sample of the hymn i'm a soldier in the army of the lord Alan Lomax, for those that aren't overly sure, was part of the uh, was part of an American ethnomusicologist father and son duo with his father John Lomax. Between them, they spent the better part of six decades cataloging recordings of folk musicians. They are the true unsung heroes of popular music. End of story. On behalf of the Library of Congress, they set out to preserve the sounds of America. Along the way, they recorded artists that would go into play a huge part of our musical lexicon, Lead Belly, Muddy Waters, Jelly Roll Morton, Sunhouse, amongst others. I've flip-flopped on my stance when it comes to sampling. I came to the conclusion that when done right, sampling is a legitimate art form and used to preserve the performance of our influences. You don't need to look much further than Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, this song for certain, and even the output of Kanye West, as, uh, as I know someone to say, Kanye, but it's Kanye. The vocals of Michelle Moore are out front and center over Bruce's final drum performance and a low, wobbly tremolo synth. There is so much space within this mix with the swirly guitar and kind of grand piano this allows bruce's perfectly and somber vocals to just sit perfectly floating in the middle rise up shepherd rise up your flock is wrong far from solemn horn break starts to hit this song home i feel another allusion to the first line funeral march of new orleans I'm 
In the final verse before the song really takes flight, the two singers begin to combine their melodies in a polyphonic texture. And that's further developed at the end. Previously mentioned, Moore breaks the song down with a rap as a bridge, and I really feel so white saying that. Use your muscle and your mind and you pray your best. That your best is good enough, the Lord will do the rest. You raise your children and I bet that really pissed off some diehard Bruce fans to have rapping <laughs> in one of his songs. Probably the same repressive fans that believe Born in the USA is a pro-patriotism song. After the rap, the gospel choir make their entry and the song really hits home. And then like a handful of songs, this one just, like I say, has a real power to put me in a funk, drain all the energy away from my being. So kind of the better we end this, the better, really. The quicker we end this, the better. Uh, well, I will make a comment on how he's really like asking us to listen to the lyrics again and dig a little deeper. Uh, the music video also features, uh, like with his first song on the album, also features the lyrics this time he's writing them and that that visual makes you listen but also just the use of using rap at first i was like what is going on but it's so direct and it really like rap is designed to make you listen to those lyrics and it really forces listeners to do that um i really like the use of like this big mix of all these different music styles but yeah it does feel like he's lost hope and referring back to religion as well Rocky ground comes from Matthew chapter 13, verse 5 and 21 to 20, 20, 20 to 21, uh, where Jesus is talking of seeds falling into rocky ground. And because they fall into the rocky ground, even though you might be enthusiastic at first, they're not going to take and they're going to be sort of forgotten about. And our hope is, is dwindling. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like um, someone that half asses something. You dive yeah. into it, and then once once it gets hard, you stop. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny you mentioned as well the the rapping as I I view that especially as well. This song for me is like the three steps to African American music, and I don't want to be boiling it down to just three things. But you start with almost like a field recording, like it's <laughs> almost like a field holler of the slaves and the the sharecroppers then you move to gospel music and then you've got the rap there and it's it's kind of like the evolution of african-american music mm, yeah yeah jake not really much more to add sort of makes up for how awfully wrong he got gospel earlier yeah. <laughs> makes up for it. yeah this is really well thought out this is like educated music yeah this is yeah, yeah. And you, can, exactly. you can say that I guess kind of for the next couple of songs, to be honest. Um, like you say, yeah. the last, the last three, really. But yeah. yeah, nothing else to add, to be honest. Land of Hope and Dreams, ranked 23rd on the Rolling Stone Top 100. 
the highest of all the Wrecking Ball songs, and Vulture ranked at 29, also the highest. This song was written and performed in 1999, long before Wrecking Ball. It was another instance of Bruce looking back to the roots of rock and roll, using the songs and imagery inspired by Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad and reinterpreting them towards modernity, uh, whilst also referring to the roots of rock and roll being set within gospel. The opening bars of the song is a crash course in African-American music. Again, we've got the monophonic sounds of a field holler. We've got the organ and choir from gospel music and the 808 drum machine from hip-hop. Once again, uh, the band enters and they set up this huge climactic feel. Although this isn't the final song of the album, we hear the optimism, we hear the mixing of cultures, we hear the rock band, the choir, the mandolin. The Bridge references Sister Rosetta Tharp's rendition of This Train from 1939. Whilst Tharp insists that this is a clean train, Bruce takes the stance of we all need to get on board if we want to reach the destination of the American dream. It features a final sax solo from the big man, albeit cut and spliced from live recordings. Peter Ames Carlin's book, uh, he states in, in his book, Bruce, that when a familiar saxophone blared from the studio speakers, Bruce cuffed the, his visitor and shouted over the music, C's last solo. Big man, big man, Curtis Mayfield and the impressions People Get Ready was also a huge influence on this track. People get ready, there's a train a coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on. The most notable reference is after the sax solo when the band interpolate the song. They just play it outright. That's all I've got. Really all I've got to add to that is uh, whoever added those programmed drums needs a slap around the head. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, I, I quite enjoy quite enjoyed this one actually. It's quite. Good. 
Hmm. This one grew on me, but when I first played it, I was like, why is there so much happening? Like, it it almost feels a bit, I don't know, I was like, oh my god, there's just too much going on, too many different genres and too many different types of instruments. But then the more I I listened to it, I I sort of understood. It kind of sums up the album, really, all of these mixes of genres and this underlying message of hope, even though everything is not okay. I also kind of thought that this is the only song that perhaps does actually hint at being truly patriotic without the irony um, because of this train metaphor. And he, mm. he's specifically saying, you know, everyone is welcome. Like you said, versus yeah. Rosetta Thorpe, um, losers, winners, um, you know, people, all races, all backgrounds, everyone is welcome. And that is the sort of American dream that, that you know, we are brought up with and uh he wants to push forward yeah you're working towards it in America. yeah working towards it yeah, yeah. Okay. and also can we just take a minute to say that is one tasty solo done yeah. by clemens oh my gosh yeah. i think it's the best solo in the whole album it's just like full of like <clears throat> when i saw them live it was his actually it was his nephew that's replaced him in the band no way. So they kept it within the family and it's it was still yeah. quite special. He's he's also a very, very good um very good saxophonist with a with an awesome name, Jake Clemens. You just thank the Lord. People get ready. You just thank the Lord. People get ready. You just Last song, We Are Alive, the final song, again, very optimistic, a message of hope that people have gone through this before and survived, we will do the same. It was ranked 75th on the top 100 Rolling Stones list, and Vulture ranked it 201st. According to Max Weinberg, the drummer, they had originally cut it in the style of a Ramones tune, but decided that the folkier arrangement fit the album better. Allegedly recorded late into the process because bruce thought that the album needed a more rounded uplifting conclusion i would have been happy with the last track being the finale (laughs) personally yeah this song sounds like a cowboy campfire song there's a cross up yonder on calvary hill there's a slip of blood on silver night it erupts in the style of Ennio Morricone's kind of great Western soundtracks. And Greg Lies is back, this time on the banjo. 1977, when the railroad workers made their stand. Bridge sounds like a square dance hall or a giant kind of hoedown. Dream it deep, from my head to my feet, my body gone stone. What do I want to? Oh right, yeah. Um, I actually checked. They didn't give June Carter Cash or Mel Kilgore a writing credit on this. Shameful, absolutely shameful. Well, actually, really? I, I think I, I think it was actually Johnny Cash that came up with the the, 
the mariachi trumpet line, wasn't it? I don't I think don't know. I can't it's remember if it was yeah. in the original. Exactly the same, though, nah. isn't it? It's kind of influenced by. No, it doesn't need to be. Hello, Marvin Gaye estate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yep. Obviously, the caches are a lot more cool than the than the gay estate. I mean, yeah. It, it's yeah. As soon as I heard, it's like ah, whatever. It's still fun. Yeah. You know, I'm yep. not going to harp on it for having a line that's similar to something else. You know, well, it's it's and it's done out of kind of affection, and it's like a, it is a record. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah, but it is very similar. Oh yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was exactly the same. I mean, it's even got like mariachi trumpet. Yeah. I thought it was maybe also reflected in his lyrics because Ring of Fire, and then our soul. Uh, his lyrics in his chorus of "We Are Alive, Our Souls Will Rise to Carry the Fire and the Light." I mean, kind of loosely related, but he still refers to fire in his lyrics. Yeah. I've I've made more tenuous connections to things in the past. That's uh... yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, then I think that rounds us out. Final thoughts, favorite song, Danny, off the album. I mean, yeah, that's tough. I, I think with all of the songs, I really strongly disliked them, and then I grew to like them. And mm-hmm. I could possibly say that's what all good albums uh, should do. Though. They should challenge you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, maybe the last song might be my favorite. I really am feeling them trumpets. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. They're Jake? closely tied. It's one of the last three songs. I don't have a favorite song on this album. I dislike all of them. You've got to pick one. That's the format. <laughs> I'm not picking one. I, I honestly couldn't pick one. I mean, um, if, if you're going to say which one do I dislike the least, it'd probably be We Take Care of Our Own. So I don't okay. mind the Arcade Fire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going Rocky Ground. Simple as that. I, I hate that song because it puts me in such a mood, but I love that song because it puts me in such a mood. Someone covering one of these songs. I, I forgot to. I forgot about this question, to be honest with you. Yeah, Arcade Fire, there we go. No, we are from Barcelona. We're from, Bar- no, we're from Barcelona doing We Take Care of Our Own. Okay, Danny? I would like someone to do You've Got It so that I can hate it less. Let's see, someone sexy. Let's have Miley Cyrus have a go. I'm going We Are Alive by Adam Sandler. I think that would be brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I would buy that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Top 10, Jake. Does this rank in your top 10? No. No, it does not. Okay. (laughs) It's going into number five for me between Tokyo Police Club's Force Field and Little Bushman's Pendulum. Is this a sound purchase, Danny? I'm going to have to say no. Unless you want to have to really, really dig in and think about something, I am in no rush to listen to this album again. Okay. Dave? I think you know my answer. Um, no, <laughs> no, I've not, not for me. Well, it's a shame because it's only my opinion that matters and I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm Stefan and this was A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. 
This episode was significantly scrubbed over by producer Paul Lochran. We were joined in commentary by our friend of the show, Danny. You can show your appreciation for the episode when you like us, review us, share us, and subscribe to us. Each engagement makes this effort all the more worthwhile, and the best way to grow this podcast is by word of mouth. Support is appreciated. Check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at asoundpurchase.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle soundpurchasepod. You can support us by getting yourself a Sound Purchase t-shirt, hoodie, mug and stickers when you go to asoundpurchase.com forward slash shop. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at all of your favourite podcast platforms. Why not subscribe to be a friend of the show? You will gain access to the hidden corridor of our website that contains exclusive blog posts, the Hall of Top Tens, special Friends of the Show merch, and it now features bonus pods, including our interview with Gaz Coombs and Joe Corwood of The Little Bushman, as well as getting into Sum 41, a series about how to explore a back catalogue of quite an extensive artist. Subscribe now at asoundpurchase.com forward slash FOTS. And if you've enjoyed the sounds during today's episode, visit your local record store to pick up a copy of Bruce Springsteen's 2012 release, Wrecking Ball. Support local businesses. <laughs>